Are you about to scream because the expense app that you use lacks customer support? Are you frustrated because the expense app you use charges your clients for all their employees when only a few employees filed their expense reports that month? Do you hate it when in-app ads disrupt your work? If you said yes to any of these questions, stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, File, later in the episode. FreshBooks, it's actually kind of funny. The uh, the headline says accounting firm FreshBooks, which is really kind of strange. <laughs> what what uh, publication was that? This was financialpost.com. Oh, that's great. I love it when they completely get it wrong, right? Like FreshBooks is an accounting firm. And there's anyway. nothing in the article to like indicate that at all. So they just made up their own headline apparently. Um, but FreshBooks, Account- they- that's it. it the, the headline is, I'm sorry, David, we have to pause on this. Right. This is financialpost.com, like a legitimate news site. Their headline is accounting firm FreshBooks hits unicorn status. There's no better sign of the confusion right now between tech company and services business than that. Today is Sunday, August 15th. This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Um, Hold on one second. I have to open up my Google Home app and prioritize my laptop or we're not going to have a good connection. I finally figured out what my issue is with Zoom. I've been having issues with my Zoom video conferencing for weeks now. Like your Zoom is bad and then... My connection is bad, but only... So I always feel like when I use Zoom, my connection's great for Zoom and everything else on my PC just goes to crap. <laughs> well, that, that's that's because I think like the Zoom app is bogging down your computer, which is one issue. But I have a computer that has just done fine with Zoom for a long time. And I have gigabit internet. I get a thousand megabits per second at home, which is incredible. And I have a Google home, what do you call it? Mesh network. So I have like a really decent mesh network and I'm getting like incredible speeds, you know, hundreds of megabits per second. And I cannot figure out for the life of me over the last two weeks, why is my computer doing poorly on Zoom? My video is stuttering, my audio is not working, but only for the first few minutes. And I finally figured it out. What was it? So I looked at how many devices I have in my house that are connected to my router, and it hit 50. I think a lot of routers are not made to have that many devices connected at the same time. So what's happening is my router is cycling through devices. So it keeps them all connected, but then it disconnects them briefly. And that works for like your thermostat in your house, but it doesn't work for video conferencing. So I have to go into my router settings and prioritize my own laptop every single day. Time and it only lasts for four hours because I don't know why Google doesn't let you permanently prioritize a device or something. So anyway, now I have to order a new router that can handle 50 simultaneous connections because I have, and people ask, well, how the heck do you have that many devices? I'm addicted to the smart home thing. So I have the smart home light bulbs and motorized shades and, you know, everything in my house can like connect to the internet pretty much. So, I mean, it doesn't take much. I mean, I don't have any of that smart home stuff and, you know, your printer, your scanner, you have a tablet and a phone and a computer, and then you have five people in the house. It starts that up really quickly. And then, you know, people are here and then, you know, contractors come by, they got their computer in their truck and they got their cell phone. And so there's constant like devices on the network. If you're looking for a new router, the one I ordered is the upgrade pick recommended by the wire cutter, the Asus RT-AX88U. I just installed Asus as well. Oh, all right. I did the the smaller model, which is the dual band, because I do I have a um, Cat Five through my whole house, so mm-hmm. I'm, the the backhaul is all on wire, 
Oh, I'm so jealous. And I didn't need the tri-band. I think I'm also going to have to have somebody come and wire my house for Ethernet up to the office. But I've just been putting that off because like when I moved in a year ago, it was impossible to get anyone out to do any of that kind of stuff because they're all busy you know, upgrading everybody else's houses for home. So The best thing about the Asus is like parent controls, all that kind of stuff and the remote management on your cell phone is all built in. It's so much better mm. than Netgear and you don't have to pay another sus- subscription fee. Like it's, yeah, and then not only that, like now if I upgrade to the tri-band, these Asus terminals I have now will just work with the new, with the next tri- uh, generation of the Asus router stuff. Awesome. Yeah, you're going to love it. It's great. Well, so that's a massive headache that has been solved for me. Um, I also got to go out and see a movie for the first time in a year and a half. That was fun. In person, you went to the theater, popcorn, sat down. Sat down at a movie theater, the local, you know, in North Scottsdale. And uh, it was great. And I think people are still, well, it was late on a Friday and, you know, it's more of a family area. So there weren't like a ton of people in the theater, which was also nice because I felt, well, you know how I feel about the Delta variant and the risk once you're vaccinated of getting COVID. It's not that high, but still it's nice when you go to a theater and you have lots of space and you don't have to worry at all. So yeah, it was great. Went to see Free Guy, that Ryan Reynolds movie. Uh, It was okay. It was better than Ready Player One. As a video gamer, or at least somebody who used to play a lot of video games growing up, I like going to see these movies, but then the quality uh, is a it's a mixed bag. So it wasn't a total waste of time. Let's just say that. I I watched a movie last night, or actually half of it Friday night and half of it Saturday night. (laughs) And I'm a little behind. You're seeing new movies that come out of the theater. I just now watched Suicide Squad, which is I think from 2016. Uh. But tying it back to the show, you watch the movie and it's like executive producer Steve Mnuchin. I was like, that guy. What? (laughs) Yeah. No way. Yeah. Like the real, the same. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, that's how he made most of his money. I think he made the vast majority of it. He was involved in, what's the one with the tails? They plug into the tr- uh, the trees, the blue people. Avatar. Avatar? I think I think he had serious money. He, he was one of the big major producers of Avatar, I think. Oh, wow. That's what I, he, yeah. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Rewind. Imagine if a meteorite wiped out into its server. It's extremely unlikely, but if it did happen, Intuit would be able to restore all your data and everyone else's that was lost. Rewind has built a backup solution for data loss situations that are way more likely to occur to your client's data. Malicious attacks, buggy apps, disgruntled clients, and of course, ourselves. Human error, the number one reason people lose data. Say goodbye to making manual copies of clients' files, CSV exports, or storing redundancies on hard drives. Rewind is introducing a new way of protecting your data through an automated daily backups and on-demand controlled data recovery. As the leading cloud backup app trusted by over 80,000 organizations around the globe, Rewind has saved thousands of accounting professionals from mind-numbing manual data entry rework. To learn even more about Rewind and access a special offer just for listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash rewind. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-W-I-N-D. Well, you brought up tax, so maybe we should dig into it. All right, let's jump in. (laughs) All right, so I've got some PPP updates. Let's just get it out of the way. Okay. So I was sitting on an AICPA town hall. They have these weekly, biweekly town halls, and they do a good job of updating us on where all these stimulus programs are. Here's where we stand with PPP forgiveness as of the end of July, July 30th. There were 11.5 million 
total PPP loans for $800 billion. Five million applications have been filed for forgiveness. And almost all of those have been forgiven. The thing that is a little scary is that 6.5 million applications have not yet been received. And that's $330 billion. So smaller loans, 6.5 million of them still waiting to go. And some of these 2020 loans, you know, are starting to come due, right? The payments are starting to be required. So yeah, my lender was all over me last week or the week before, because apparently I had to turn mine in by Friday. They launched that new website. I was like, great, I'll go to that website, fill it out, boom, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you can only go to that website and use it if the lender basically sends your loan numbers to the SBA first and says, these people are going to use this website to file their forgiveness. So I go to the website, I start filling it out, and they're like, oh, we're not doing that. So I still had to print the PDF. I just still had to do the PDF that they sent me and sent the PDF back to the lender, then they send it to the SBA. So even though they have the new website, this the workflow and the system is not optimized for the small business owner that wants to file forgiveness. Because the lender has to opt into that. Got it. Uh. And that explains, remember two weeks ago, we had that the quote from the SBA, somebody at the SBA, and they said, hey, take this off your plate. Let us do everything. That's why they were they were encouraging the lenders to use push mm. people to this site because apparently they're not just turning it on automatically. I, I have no idea. All I know is I could not use the new website for forgiveness, which explains why a lot of people are not going to – filling out a PDF is just a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. <laughs> to do that. So, you know, let's let's stay on our clients, right? Remind them, even if they did their own PPP loans, they're going to need our help, at least remembering to fill out these forgiveness applications. So that's one headache for preparers, uh, tax preparers for accountants uh, who have been helping with PPP. Thanks, Mnuchin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. There was a survey in accounting today summarizing some of the headaches and trying to rank them. As we know, the last couple of tax seasons have been pretty brutal for CPAs, accountants, EAs. The National Association of Tax Professionals did a survey of more than 20,000 tax preparers before and after last tax season, comparing expectations of the upcoming season with how it actually went. And the big takeaway from this uh, is that the, the, the most critical issues tax pros faced were related to fast-changing tax laws and then the uh, complexity of, of returns because of all these changes that were happening. So a lot of returns had to be filed and then refiled or amended because of all these last-minute changes. Regarding staffing levels, two-thirds of firm owners had made no changes to their staffing levels in response to the stimulus. In hindsight, many of them would have hired more staff if they had known the complexities of the season. So before the tax season, only 9% of firms plan to increase their staff. After tax season, 25% said that they would have increased their staff if they could have. So, so, so but the other 75%, did they just kind of, hey, we had the perfect amount of staff? They did not have an opinion on this? I think they were set up. Yeah. I mean, we know that, I can't remember the stat, but there were a good chunk of firms that did PPP and helped with stimulus, but then there were a whole bunch of firms that didn't do any of that. That's because they were just moving to, you know, cloud-based servers. <laughs> they were busy migrating to to cloud hosting. Yeah. Um, so, like, there's a big division in the community, in the accounting profession, of, of firms that helped with coronavirus relief and those that didn't. 
And so if you didn't, uh, it makes sense, right? Why would you need more staff? Ne you, not necessarily. Uh, if you did, you absolutely needed help. But those are the firms that are growing, right? Is the ones that that help their clients with relief. It's the, the ones that are static, but that didn't. So I've got some more news in the uh, world of politics, infrastructure. Infrastructure bill passed the Senate. The one, was it $1 billion infrastructure package? It's trillion, right? 1.3 trillion or something? Trillion, yes. Billions. We like, we did, like, billions don't even, like, that's a mistake now. Nobody <laughs> even keeps track of billions. <laughs> so yeah, so the infrastructure package got scaled down. It got bipartisan support in the Senate. And interestingly, the thing that got dropped from it was that we're aware of is the IRS funding, the $80 billion for the, the IRS is not in the infrastructure bill that passed. I think the plan is to put it in this separate $3 trillion budget reconciliation bill that the House is going to pass. I guess they break it up this way so they can be somewhat bipartisan, right? Like, they, oh, we got bipartisan support on $1 trillion, and then we're not getting bipartisan support on the $3.5 trillion. So that's a separate bill. I don't, I don't really understand it. There's no way like any of these people are reading these bills. <laughs> so, so, so the, the funding is not in there. What is in there that's interesting, and this is what actually caused a lot of debate in the final few days when they were trying to pass this in the Senate, is cryptocurrency rules that are going to affect us in the accounting profession in a significant way. To summarize what is happening, this is in the Senate bill. One provision is going to require that payments worth more than $10,000 be reported to the Internal Revenue Service. So, you know, much like with fiat currency, you know, if you transfer more than $10,000 bank to bank or whatever, they have to report that to the government, right? Informational reporting to make sure that people aren't laundering money, that taxes are being reported, all that stuff. That one's not that controversial because it's just taking something that we do currently with money, applying it to crypto. The second provision in the bill is the controversial one. It clarifies the definition of a broker for players in the cryptocurrency market. And the definition is very broad. And so there have been amendments that have been going back and forth to try and narrow this scope. I'll just read you what the definition is. So a cryptocurrency broker is, quote, any person who, for consideration, is responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person, unquote. So that would put Square, PayPal, that vending machine I bought crypto through. They're all brokers. CoinMe uh, or whatever it's Coinbase. called. Coinbase. As yeah. brokers. Now, that's not, that's not really that concerning because they expect to be considered brokers. And they already are doing 1099 informational reporting. Right? The form 1099 is what you get. Coinbase already does it, for instance. But that definition is so broad that it might include software developers or Bitcoin miners even. Then the question is, well, how does somebody who's a software developer who's effectuating cryptocurrency transactions do a 1099, do informational reporting, when they don't even know who the other party is? Because crypto is anonymous. So if you're a digital, you're, you're just a wallet, but you're kind of just an app on just helping people manage their cryptocurrency balances. You're not actually moving the money per se. You're effectuating like the transfer. You could right? possibly fall under this as a broker. Potentially, right? It's so broad that nobody's really sure what might fall into that. And so... So who drove this? Like, like obviously, like somebody somebody's pushing for this. 
it's because this is one of the ways that they're going to raise the money for the infrastructure bill. It's estimated that this provision, this informational reporting provision, could raise $28 billion over a decade. $28 billion because a lot of people are evading their taxes with crypto. Since there's very little informational reporting that goes to the government, they don't know about it. How do they know to audit you? So Treasury is trying to quell fears about this, saying, oh, we're not going to regulate miners. We're not going to regulate software developers this way. This is really just for brokers. Do you really believe that? Does anyone really? They could go in and, and make it broad if they wanted to. And that could actually like shut down crypto in the United States, potentially, right? Because if it's not anonymous, you know, if you can't do the informational reporting, then you can't transfer crypto. What the government wants to do is in some ways antithetical to the whole idea of cryptocurrency being anonymous and open and the anonymous part in particular. Uh, so that's that's interesting, right? That the infrastructure bills got stuck in the last few days because of basically 1099s. But like you said, they're rolling in that the 80 billion for the IRS, right? Isn't that getting rolled into the bill as well? Well, no, it got stripped out of it. It got stripped out. Okay. Yeah. So basically going after cryptocurrency tax cheats is more popular than funding the IRS. Well, the thing, I guess my point of view, or maybe this is some people's would be is like, what's the point of funding the IRS if they don't have the tools to go after this crypto assets? And, and they need both. Things? Yeah, they need the informational reporting and they need more people to do it. Anyway, um, what does this actually mean for all of us in practice? It means that there's going to be a whole lot more 1099s, not until 2023, because that's when it goes into effect. So for tax year 2023, expect those of your client, probably some of your clients who have never told you about crypto will come to you with their 1099 and then they'll have to get all clean and caught up, right? <laughs> um, last one, last one in the stimulus world uh, or government world, a closing date has been set for the Shuttered Venue Operator Grant program. So this is the program for venue, musical venues, theaters, that sort of thing. They are closing that down on August 20th. So that it will be on Friday. This episode will air before then. So I thought it was out of money already. Did I not remember this correctly? Actually, it's the opposite. This program has plenty of money left in it. They're actually going to reopen it after it closes for second round. So people have already gotten a first SVOG loan could go get or a grant could go get another one. And these are really good. These are really good because they're not loans. They're just pure grants. You can get up to 45% of your gross earned revenue up to a maximum of $10 million directly filling in the revenue gap caused by these places being closed. And I imagine like I'm thinking like, you know, here like the independent music theater here, A, they can use it obviously to pay for staff, but I mean, they could probably remodel and do a lot of projects they've been wanting to do. This is that yeah. it, 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 if they're getting 10 or $20 million, it's pretty well, major. I, yeah. And I, I wonder why this program hasn't been completely used up. And I imagine it's because a lot of the venues just didn't even make it to the point where they could still be around to take these grants. Yeah, because they, they, they were the two businesses that they had no choice. They could not go yeah, remote. I mean, they didn't they didn't get a benefit of COVID in any way, shape or form. You couldn't use their venues. Yeah. And now there, it feels like, you know, with starting to feel like the recommendations are you won't be able to use their venues soon, anytime soon again. I know, so right? Uh, and people are still just based on my experience going out to the movies, people are still hesitant to go out. I mean, I, I think our theater was 10, 20 percent full. So I don't know how they're paying the bills there. So um, some numbers for you. They've received nearly 15,900 applications for SVOG so far. That represents $12.3 in requested funding. 
there's still nearly four billion remaining in the program. So go get it. And that's all I've got for stimulus top news stuff. We can talk about apps. We can talk about remote work. Uh, I don't know what's top of mind for you. I have one article that's not app news, which is interesting. We can chat through. Do you remember we had Kelly Richmond Pope on the podcast? We were at AICP Engage and we interviewed her. Yeah, a few years ago at this point. And yeah. she's a professor at Firewood University, but she made that documentary called All the Queen's Horses. And it was about that massive fraud in uh, Dixon City, where essentially over a period of probably a decade, she took $45 million out of this teeny little city or county's budget. But, you know, basically all fraud, right? And she bought all these award-winning quarter horses and et cetera, et cetera. So she had a, a sentence. She was sentenced in 2013 to 19 years and seven months. Mm. And basically had a, you know, if you survey 5% of the sentence, she'd have a release date of October 20th of 2029. She just got released on August 4th. Well, how much of her sentence did she actually serve? Like So she wound up serving... If it was 2013 and she got out now, so she's, she got released eight years early. So she served half her sentence. Yeah, but nobody knows why. Or like the city officials half. don't know why. Um, they said it was a – she already petitioned for early release in April of 2020 due to her deteriorating, quote-unquote, health condition. Mm. Just a small follow-up on that because I think it really affected the community mm-hmm. because they, they couldn't fund things like fire department. And police, like it was a pretty major impact when you, when somebody steals $45 million of the county or city's budget. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there's that. I know it always disappoints me when I hear about people who commit these really horrific frauds and then they only serve a fraction of their sentence and then they get out and they make hundreds of thousands of dollars going out and speaking at conferences and is that really the right thing to do that we want to like financially reward these people? Like, like the Enron guy. I wouldn't guy, be surprised you know? if she shows up in the, the, the book and the conference tour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. I, I would not be surprised about that at all. I mean, but if you, but if, for any of you who haven't watched this, um, Google all the Queen's horses and watch that documentary. I don't know where it's at, but you can watch it. Or, and it's probably, maybe you have to pay to rent it, but it's like three bucks or ever four bucks. It's worth watching. All the Queen's horses or go to um, kellyrichmondpope.com and you'll find her. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by File. Would you like an expense app that offers 24-7 support, only charges for employees that actually file expense reports, and doesn't subject you, your clients, or their employees to in-app ads? It exists and it's called File. That's File with a Y. When your clients use File, their employees can track their expenses where it's most convenient, on their phone, via the File app, or via Gmail, Outlook, Slack, even an iMessage. When expenses are submitted, Files AI and OCR technology will extract all the information from the receipt and automatically fill out the expense forms, giving you the ability to monitor expenses in real time. If you need compliance policies, budget controls, or fraud detection, File does that too. File offers a multi-org portal to easily manage all your clients within a single account and syncs with all your favorite cloud accounting apps like QuickBooks, Xero, Intact, and NetSuite. File's accounting partner program offers training resources, co-marketing opportunities, and revenue sharing. To learn more about File, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash file. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash F-Y-L-E. File is everyone's expense dream come true. 
So then I had a great article on MIT Technology Review. So not directly related to us, but it is because it has that favorite keyword, AI. Basically, hundreds of AI tools have been built to catch COVID and none of them help. None of the AI tools to catch COVID have helped. Hundreds and hundreds. It started out with a very good intention, right? People are like, oh, if machine learning and algorithms can be trained, it'll help doctors understand and it might save lives, right? But in the end, hundreds of predictive tools were developed and none of them made a real difference. And some were even potentially harmful. Um, so, so this is like, give me an example of. Oh, we're going to get into some of the. Like. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Okay. Um, because a lot of it is, it, it's interesting because it reminds me of bank feeds and it reminds me of the automation in our own industry and the struggle that we, that we see in, in our industry with these tools. So there's been two studies um, that kind of have the same consensus. One was from the Turing Institute. They're the UK's National Center for Data and AI. They put out a report summarizing this, and they said the clear consensus was AI tools had made little, if any, impact in the fight against COVID. And then there was a second study that was published in the review of the British Medical Journal, and they said that they looked at 232 algorithms for diagnosing patients, and they found that none of them were fit for clinical use, and just two have been singled out as possibly promising enough to test in the future. And so let's get into some specifics on, on what they kind of found. A, a lot of the times they just, the way they were trained or tested, it just set them up for failure. A lot of times they were uh, designed inappropriately where I guess with COVID, if people, patients are laying down or standing up, but it can affect the results of the test, but they didn't know that. And so they, because they don't have the medical background. So they train these algorithms. They also train some algorithms. Um, I'm trying to understand. So these are tech companies that have created diagnostic tools for yeah so there there's data sets out there um, okay they, they actually refer to them as frankenstein data sets so they're spliced together multiple sources they have duplicates they don't have all the they don't have the clinical background for this what like data of infections or like by like i'm trying to understand what are they trying to figure oh, so, out so sometimes it's um data from medical scans like they they get a there's a dump of medical scans sometimes there's a data from the true pcr test sometimes it's just data from doctor's handwriting, mm -hmm. right? Where it says COVID, <laughs> reason for visit, COVID. And so they they use these different data sets that are out there to train their algorithms. And, and so- and what are the algorithms trying to figure out? Like- Who has COVID and who doesn't? Who has, right? okay. Who's and so they basically did a bunch of, they, were, they took some data where they had chest scans of children. And essentially it couldn't, it never really figured out who the cases look like, but it, what it did is it figured out how to figure out if it was a kid, <laughs> not COVID. So it didn't really help. Um, and then uh, there's a thing about because patients lying down were more likely to be seriously ill, the AI uh, wrongly predicted serious COVID risk from people's positions. So because it didn't know that some of the scans were people were standing up versus lying down. And so, so it couldn't do it the, the correct way. Another one, which is really crazy, um, certain fonts that the hospital used to like label the scans. So whatever the paperwork would print out and be scanned, the font was throwing off caseloads. So it's, it's basically the AI taught itself, if it's this font, it must be COVID. Okay, so this is an example of just throwing data sets at AI and then asking the AI to come to some conclusion. And what you're saying is that uh, the, the AI would come to ridiculous conclusions that a human would know better than to like associate font with a diagnosis. Exactly. Or, and, so <laughs> it's, and it's a double-edged sword here, right? Because um, a lot of the tools are either... They're developed by AI researchers who lack any medical expertise. Yeah. And then on the other side, the medical research researchers, they lack any mathematical skills. 
to compensate for the flaws of the AI research researchers. So now I know why you brought this to the show, because you're going to compare the work that software developers in the accounting and tax profession are doing with, you know, reality on the ground, right? Exactly. And, and a lot of this is, um, and they tie this back to it's an old problem with research. Academic research have few career incentives to share work or validating the results. So there's no reward for pushing through that last mile, right? And they call it from lab bench to bedside. But for us, it goes to like, you know, scan and receipt. This is what you, you, everybody with all the automation we have, everybody gets to like 90%. Nobody gets that last 10%. And some of, I think it is expertise. Some of it's the data sets. Uh, there was a funny line in here. It talked about the, a lot of these models are trained on set of data X. Then when mm. they go to test the model at the end, they give it the same data. So of course it passes because it was tested on the data it was trained on. So like the, like the whole thing, for, 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 I don't know, the whole thing's crazy for considering like, I would argue these are possibly some of the smartest people in the world possibly working on this, right? They're AI mm -hmm. researchers. And right, with no the medical amount of experience. obvious stuff they miss and blow is just mind boggling mm. to me. So this, this ties into app news. Absolutely, let's jump in. So here's how this all relates to news in our profession. So you're talking about AI researchers building technology. They're not medical professionals. And so they end up building tools that don't work, that probably if they had some experience in medicine, they would realize they're not going to work. Hubris, right? It's, it's sort of this hubris that like, oh, software and AI and machine learning can, can do anything. We, we kind of have that in our own profession, right? Like you said, we'll, we'll get software developers who have no experience in accounting coming into the profession trying to tell us how to run our businesses. The thing that I remember from 10 years ago was all these developers coming in and telling accounting firms, here's practice management software that doesn't have time tracking in it. But they didn't actually implement another alternative to time tracking in the software. They just said, you, you can drop it with this. And then, of course, that didn't work. And then they had to go and add time tracking because that's how people manage their businesses right now. Although maybe that's a terrible analogy because I'm not a big fan of time tracking. But you, if, you, if you're not going to do time tracking, you have to do something else, right? So it's an example of the hubris of developers in many well, cases. Well, I mean, have you right? ever, I mean, I think you use HubDoc. I think I've used AutoEntry. Um, and I've used other tools that are out there. You'll get a bill in, the, in email. You'll forward the bill to one of these packages. They'll do the AI. And then it puts your name in as the vendor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you, you you forgot to delete your email signature off the forward when you said mm -hmm. it, right? It's just like, this is just where we're at. And like you said, if you don't solve, if you only solve up to 80 or 90%, the edge cases end up making your product much less efficient and not as desirable. But you have to solve those cases. So, so here's an example of Zero using AI ML. So they are... Finally, after years redoing bank reconciliations in Zero, like the new the screen when I log in now has a different look. In a blog post, they recently described how with this new bank rec, they are going to be doing what QuickBooks has been doing for a little while, I believe, which is suggesting vendor names and coding for transactions that you've never coded before in your own file. Okay, this is good because when I read this uh, when I read this blog post, um, it's nice because they covered the historic from. What, what year did they say that started this? Uh, 15 years ago. So they kind of covered their whole mm -hmm. journey on this. And I was reading it and I was like, wait a second, QBO has been doing this. Like, I want, I want to make sure I wasn't missing this or making a false assumption in my brain, but you just kind of confirmed some of this stuff has already been, been done by QuickBooks before. 
Correct, correct. Now it's going to be doing something similar, right? Using the the full data set of all the transactions across zero accounts, some sort of AI is going to suggest the coding to you. But that could be good or bad, right? Depending on on how accurate it is. Uh, and so it's all about the implementation. Well, this, it's not the implementation. It's about the data. So this is the perfect example of this. I use Melio with lots of different banks. Mm-hmm. And Melio, the, the data it passes to the bank is all the same. But then the bank does whatever they do and the bank creates a bank feed. So by the time the data comes in the bank feed, so I could send the same transaction. I send you a dollar through Melio and I could put it three times, put it in, boom, 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 three different banks. It sends it up. It comes down the bank feed. All three times it comes down the bank feed is different. The banks don't deliver it properly in all three banks. Um, and sometimes it's dumb stuff where it's just a space. So the the vendor name is connected to the end of the another word. So there's no space. So then Zero and QuickBooks have no hope of parsing that correctly, right? The, the data, the data set that's passed to the AI, right, right, has to be decent, or else they, they just can't do it. Yeah, that's a good point. One of the other things that I've been wishing that Zero would do is allow us to reconcile more than just a bank account because they have this tech in there and it only works on the bank accounts. But like, why can't I reconcile a current asset account or a loan account in Zero without turning it into a bank account? Like that would be really cool. Like that kind of thinking, I don't know, maybe if you're a, a developer, you just never, it never occurs to you that you might want to be able to do that in the software. More updates from Zero. They are partnering with Revolut, a fintech bank, or what do we call them? Neobanks? Revolut's a neobank that's big in Europe. They're also here in the US. Zero is partnering with them in the UK. And we say big, like they are big, big, like what a $38 billion valuation now or some ridiculous thing. Of right? course, yes. It's big, big. And and not with only 100 clients, with like hundreds of thousands, <laughs> right? Unlike some of these accounting firm startups. What is interesting about this partnership, it's only in the UK, so sorry, everyone in the US, um, but maybe we'll get something like this. What's interesting is that the integration is going to allow users to provision credit cards or expense cards for their employees in Revolut. The employees can then categorize, they can attach receipts and categorize the expenses in Revolut and then sync those back fully reconciled into zero. So I, I, I think this is really interesting is this idea of being able to have your employees code transactions not in zero. So you don't have to give them access to the accounting system. They're doing it in Revolut, coding the transactions from their individual card, and then all of that gets synced into zero pre-reconciled. So that would be something that like all the neobanks should be doing. It would save us a ton of time as accountants is get our clients to code their own transactions. And and this goes back to the apps, right? And, and developers making choices. And, and I look at a lot of the expense tracking apps. Take a photo of the receipt. You want to track it. App A will let you put in the class. App B won't. App C will let you put in the customer job, right? App, the, app X won't let you put in the um, the account or the category, right? To to or the transaction is supposed to, right? Every single one of them has different fields it lets on their little mobile app. So the employees can't really do it. It really has to be all the fields need to be there. Let your employees code that up and then pass it through. But again, it's decisions being made without a lack of understanding of kind of the real world use case. And that reminds me of a message we got from one of our listeners about QuickBooks tags. So after Ted Callahan came on the show and was talking about tags, we got a, a listener messaging us, and I forget who it was, who said, you know, tell Ted that tags are great, but it's kind of useless if they are not accessible via the API. And that's exactly one of those kind of things where, okay, you've got this new feature, but if I can't, if it's not exposed so through integrations, it's not really useful to me. 
Because yeah, I, I, yeah, I think tags is actually genius. And this is where you make tags available in the API. You only present that as an option to your end user employees, the tags. They tag it with two or three things. And then in theory, you could make rules in QBO. If it's tagged with this and this, uh, code it to here. So I get right? it. Right? Like, because the tags are, tags are, they, I actually think it's one of the smartest things being added. And it's completely underutilized. And without APIs, it'll never really get maximized. I totally agree with that. The caller, text message, or tweet, whatever we got with that statement. LinkedIn message. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting idea. Like, use the tags as your employee facing coding mechanism and then keep the chart of accounts for just for accounting purposes. I like that. Well, the really big news this past week was Gusto raised a bunch more money. They raised $175 million. And this is their series E, right? So they're getting they're on they're getting very close to the next step is basically IPO. $9.5 billion valuation. The round was led by T Row Price. And Axios says, why does it matter? There is no better sign of a labor market roaring back than demand for payroll software. So Gusto has really been riding this rebound in the economy with all these small businesses starting. It's their perfect niche is the sub 100 employee companies that are coming back. And they've been doing a great job like with all the stimulus tools. You can actually like do an uh, employer retention credit right inside of Gusto. Like that, that's that's pretty neat. And it feels like they're moving from startup to traditional company, if that makes yeah. any sense. If you look at all the investors, it's like Franklin Templeton. It's not it's not the typical startup early risk guys, right? It's it's just people that want the on the resume to be able to say, hey, we invested in Gusto pre-IPO. Yeah. And then if you look at the two people they've added to their board, it's people like with experience, they were on the Kraft Heinz company board, board of trustees at Fidelity. This person was the CIO of the New York State Common Retirement Fund. So just they're, they're shifting from this like, hey, we're a startup, grow at all costs to like, you could clearly see the the beds being made for a true IPO. So somebody else had a big raise this week as well. FreshBooks, it's actually kind of funny. The uh, the headline says accounting firm FreshBooks, which is really kind of strange. <laughs> what what uh, publication was that? This was financialpost.com. Oh, that's great. I love it when they completely get it wrong, right? Like FreshBooks is an accounting firm. And there's anyway. nothing in the article to like indicate that at all. So they just made up their own headline, apparently. Um, but FreshBooks- Account- that's it, it, the, the headline is, I'm sorry, David, we have to pause on this. Right. This is financialpost.com, like a legitimate news site. Their headline is accounting firm FreshBooks hits unicorn status. I mean, if there's no sign of the, there's no better sign of the confusion right now between tech company and services business than that. <laughs> yeah. So and so they raised 130 million, and now they you know they've hit over a just over a billion dollar valuation. And what's what's interesting about this, I don't know why it's such a low valuation, because supposedly they've reported this. You know, hey, we have two million small businesses. Zero has what 2.7? I just read in their little blog post. Wait, so what's their valuation? Well, just a billion dollars. And so, why? So, so okay, zero's sorry, valuations what right now? Market cap's 21 billion. Or something like that, twenty-five right, billion somewhere right. in there. I don't understand why their valuation is so small. And so I don't. Sometimes I wonder, and I've always wondered this, like how they count small businesses. Like when Zero says they have two point seven small businesses, that's two point seven businesses. And I always feel like FreshBooks doesn't truly ever report their businesses; they just report users. So if I send you an invoice for my FreshBooks mm-hmm. and you pay it, two users. 
doesn't mean you're really a FreshBooks user. You just, you know, you paid me through FreshBooks. So I, I just can't imagine if they truly had 2 million small businesses on FreshBooks in the same way QuickBooks has 4 million, 4.5 million small businesses on QBO and zero has 2.7 million. If they truly had 2 million small businesses, their valuation has to be more than a billion dollars. Like, how is this possible? Rewind. So how many, how many businesses does FreshBooks say it has? Well, they've claimed before, it's not in this article, but that, that they have 2 million small businesses. 2 million. Remember, they even said they were the number two accounting software package. Remember, we've questioned this before. And Zero says they have 2.7 million. I think I just saw that in their article. Something like that. The new article is about their reconcile feature. Yeah. So Zero. Okay. So there's a couple things going on here. One is that FreshBooks is targeted toward micro businesses. So, and their, their pricing plans are much lower, right? So it's less revenue per user. That well, they used to thing. be just a kind of an accounts receivable. Invoicing. Player, yeah. player, right? And then they've added full ledger and they're, they're marching down that path. Well, but you see like the, the, the premium. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, it's hard to tell. They're doing 50% off. Well, they're up to 50 bucks per month on their premium plan. So yeah, this is interesting. I wonder what's going on with the numbers there. Although Zero and QuickBooks, right? They tend to upsell customers. They cross-sell. So like add payroll, add merchant services, all this stuff, right? So their customers are worth more. That could also be part of it. But yeah, it, but it's also that whole, you think about there's AR only plays that have higher valuations. No, that's a good question. Like there's something that doesn't add up in this. It's like, what? why is the valuation so low for FreshBooks? Unless FreshBooks really does not They've been around for 17 years, right? So it's they probably don't need the money in the same way like a lot of aggress companies aggressively trying to grow it are. They say they're mm. going to use this money to acquire other companies. They're going to have an acquisition-fueled growth strategy. But I just it just seems like a very low valuation for somebody who claims to be number two accounting software package. It's a good question. And, so and, FreshBooks has always been kind of like this, like it's always been gray, very secretive. You never really see the real numbers. And so it's hard to, it's hard. It, we don't, we don't have enough information publicly to like understand it. This episode of the cloud accounting podcast is sponsored by AFO wealth management. AFO wealth management forward was created to allow accounting firms to integrate wealth management services into their practice with ease. AFO Wealth Management Forward, powered by Arrowroot Family Office, provides a simple and easy way for accounting firms to integrate financial planning, estate planning, life insurance, and investment advisory into their current practice to increase recurring revenue streams without straining existing staff and resources. The program provides access to a robust online learning management system, one-on-one -on -one coaching, monthly Q&A sessions, webinars, and access to great partners, including Betterment, Vanilla Estate Planning, commission-free life insurance from DPL, and financial planning tools like Right Capital and eMoney. Learn how to easily adopt wealth management services through the power of technology and collaboration, and get 25% off when you mention the Cloud Accounting Podcast. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash AFO. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash AFO. One more funding announcement. 
Lockstep, which makes quote-unquote connected accounting software, has raised $2.5 million from Amex Ventures, closing out a $13 million Series A funding round. In total, they've raised $17 million. I found this interesting because Lockstep is like practice management software, but for accounts payable, accounts receivable, corporate accounting teams. And I think maybe we've talked about them on a different episode because they seem very familiar, or maybe it was another company like this. But I find this very interesting regardless because this idea of having a centralized inbox where you can then process requests and you can handle collections and payables in a single place, it makes a lot of sense. And I can see a ton of corporate teams, corporate accounting teams using a a solution like this to manage the work that they're doing. So the features include a centralized inbox, like a, a help desk software, where you can have all of the inbound requests and outbound in a single place. There's automation that you can build into this. There's digital onboarding where you can collect information from vendors and customers to sync their data with your ERP system. There's an online accounts feature, so you can create a portal for vendors to self-service their accounts. You can send statements from there, allow them to access statements. There's a messaging feature in a secure portal. There's a payments tool. I'm not sure quite exactly how to describe this. Uh, it, it's like a, it's it's sort of like an AR portal, but it also is AP. It's a really neat uh, kind of new, different solution. I'm trying to like figure this out because their website doesn't link back to it. This is another product. They just rebranded. It's Lockstep.io. You, yeah, so we've this seen this was, before. Yeah, it was somebody else. Hold on, let me see here. Oh, it was e2btech.com. That's who it was. So they've been in this space a long time. Yeah, they basically, because they were basically ERP type software for accounting firms. They were in that space. Well, they're not for accounting firms. They're for accounting departments. Accounting departments, yeah. Yeah. So the mission is really interesting. On their LinkedIn page, it says, our mission, connect the world's accounting departments to let them work better together. Yeah, they were a company called, it was a, a company called E2B Technologies, the letter E, the number two, the letter B, tech.com. And they had a product called Anytime Collect. And that product now redirects to Lockstep. New IRS tax collection notices are going out with a QR code. QR codes are taking over the world, David. Remember when I first ventured out after the vaccination, after my vaccination, and I went to a restaurant? Yes. And I saw the QR code, and I scanned it with my phone, and I paid on my phone, and I thought, wow, technological advances. A 20-year-old technology finally getting used, QR codes. Well, the IRS has embraced QR codes. They're adding it to certain types of tax due notices. The notices where you're going to see these now is balance due notice, overdue taxes or tax return notice, individual balance due, first and second notices, intent to levy. All of these collections notices basically are going out with these and it will allow your clients to scan it with their phone so they can go into a portal and see what they owe and pay it right there. They don't have to call in order to resolve their issues. So couple other players trying to get into the bookkeeping space. Zen Business, this is one of those uh, will be your um, your register for your business, right? We're going to follow your incorporation stuff. We'll st- help you establish all your business IDs, et cetera. So one of those types of incorporating business uh, services. 
they now have a, they purchased another company, a company called Joust in July of 2020. And now they've relaunched a new product called Zen Business Money. So this is an all-inclusive payments and invoicing app. So it's basically kind of like a merchant services, more of a play, but you can actually send out your invoices from it as well. And interesting quote I thought from their founder was in here about how, you know, previously aspiring small business owners would need to spend precious time doing research, finding the right accountant, choosing a bank service to their financial needs before they'd even start thinking about selling their product or service. Now they can set this all up for free and focus on time to get their first dollar. So it's interesting how they're positioning this as it's a replacement for a lot of things, possibly even in your accountant. Now, I did go on their website and look, really tried to dig in. They don't offer any accounting services so or anything like that, but maybe they're on that March next. So this is zenbusiness.com. Okay, so that's interesting. So it's a formation company. They, they set up your company, but then they also give you software, payment software and invoicing software and a dashboard to manage invoices, payments, and clients. But this is what you've been saying. Like, there's no reason. I mean, Avalar is starting to head down this path, but there's no reason when you sign up for QuickBooks or you sign up for Zero that this should not be the other direction. Like, those companies should be getting into this company's business. Interesting. So, yeah, it's just it's just weird because usually that's always been separate. the The formation services have their fee, and then you go and buy accounting software. But now you have a formation company that's going to give you accounting software, at least something to get started. Okay, and then they bill it annually. So it's a recurring revenue stream. So like their most popular plan, the pro plan, $199 billed annually plus state fee, expedited filing service, annual reporting, operating agreement, template, employer ID number. And, and they can include this in that fee because they're going to get merchant fees from this. They're not giving you the, you know, they're going to get the merchant fee. Right. On the, yeah. On the service. Oh, and you can add a website. You can add a domain name. <laughs> Interesting. And then they give you the uh, the software to get paid, right? Yeah, and they're getting they're getting a cut of all of your merchant services. So this is sort of like the equivalent of um, something analogous is banks that then give you accounting software. Yes, which is the next article. How, how convenient for you to say, say something like this. <laughs> I did not. We didn't plan this. Okay. So U.S. Bank is going to buy. You've probably seen them at conferences. They've they've been at the QuickBooks Connects before. Uh, Bento for business. And it was basically, think about Expensify, but if it was a debit card. So you own, you basically, you prepay, it's a prepaid expense card. So you budget $200 on your expenses. You you transfer it to Bento for Business. You give your employees these their credit cards and they go and spend and it goes through an app and tracks and sinks back to QuickBooks. So US Bank purchased this fintech company because they want to offer their customers services like this. So they want to offer the accounts uh, payable side and track expenses. But then they also, um, they have their own version, something called Elevon, E-L-A-V-O-N. And then apparently they also bought a product called Talec, T-A-L-E-C-H. U.S. Bank bought all these. They bought these because now they want to offer accounts. So they bought Bento to offer the accounts payable side, but they already purchased two other companies to offer accounts receivable. So again, this march of the banks trying to become the GLs, right? To keep everybody at their site. I could see them doing the single entry thing, the expense management, the coding, all the APAR. I mean, that's ideal, right? You, why, why wouldn't you want that where your money is? You have a bank that can do everything. I mean, the problem is making it all work seamlessly is the challenge. But if somebody can do it, they could win. 
Although then there's also the issue of if you're a bank, one of the one of the biggest problems is that once people are with another bank, it's really hard to get them to switch because it's so painful to change your account numbers, your routing numbers. Nobody ever wants to do it. So that's the advantage that the uh, bring your own bank solutions have. I guess that's that's you. That's Melio, right, David? Like you can use it with any bank. So that's the advantage you guys have, as opposed to a startup where you have to use our bank in order to use all of our money management payment tools. Yeah, and it ties back to the Square acquisition last week. Right? I was thinking about that a lot, and I actually, I think I heard a, a comment or uh, on a podcast or something. But a lot of this play is Square and these companies like they don't even want to partner with banks anymore. They just want to bypass them entirely. So now if you offer buy now, pay later, you can offer that as a service and completely bypass traditional lending facilities of the banks. No credit cards. Like this yeah. is just yeah. a continual march to take the bank 100% out of the picture in the relationship with the consumer. And I'm sure the banks are scared of this. Like yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on the banks. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very scary on this. We're, we're almost out of time, David, and we got a voicemail. And we have reviews. We got to read those too. So I'm just going to make one quick note though on uh, Check. We've talked about Check. There are APIs for payroll. Mm-hmm. So the so if I'm a developer and I'm building an app, we've talked about this. Every app's going to offer payroll now. But what you now instead of just getting the paycheck calculations and the money movement to pay the employees, they're now going to offer as part of their APIs the ability to integrate directly with QuickBooks Online. So now as a developer, if I want to add payroll to my app, I don't have to do anything. It's all out of the box for me even syncing to QuickBooks to payroll transactions. So I just thought that was like one of the smartest moves I've hmm. seen a company make from an API level in our space. All right, let's read the reviews. Oh, wow, we got a bunch of reviews. Okay, four reviews this week. Two okay. on uh, Apple Podcast and two on Podchaser. You wanna... Let's take turns. All, right. All in, five stars. Hey, Blake and David, congratulations on the great podcast. You have become my go-to source of current events in the accounting world. Can't wait for next week and the week after that. And after that, too. That is from C. Bordeaux via Apple Podcasts. Thank you. And we have another one from Apple Podcasts. This is a five-star review. Better than any mass market publication. CAP is real, quote unquote, on the streets report of what's going on in accounting. And this is from Amanda from NOLA on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Amanda. Rachel on Podchaser said, great podcast to keep up to date on accounting news. Fun and interesting. Wish they did more episodes. And last one is, so this is Eddie Valls. As an owner of a modern accounting firm, the Cloud Accounting Podcast is a weekly staple to stay up on the fintech news and developments in the accounting industry. I don't miss an episode. Eddie from Wellness FI. Wellness FI. Thank you, Eddie. And thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, C. Bordeaux. Really appreciate all those reviews. If you want to write a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or you can go to Podchaser. We really appreciate them. They're one of the number one things that helps us move up in the rankings and get visibility to more accountants. We've been doing really well on that recently. I think we're at we're like, number what, 11 number... business news all time on Apple podcast. Almost oh the top 10 business news <laughs> all time podcast. It was just, just amazing. Uh, it's, it's almost amazing. weird to say it. And we also have a voicemail number. If you want to give us a call, you can leave us a voicemail 202-695-1040, 202-695-1040. And we got one this week, so I'm going to go ahead and play that once I can find it. Here we go. All right, I'll try to keep this brief. Happy birthday, Blake. Thank you for what you guys do every week. I appreciate all the good advice and tips so far on my little board. I've got Earth Class Mail that I need to do. 
I got green back. That is something I've been meaning to do for a while. And um, choice. I didn't see any show notes on choice, so I'm going to ding you for that one. And then any listener should listen to the Sons of CPAs podcast. I think you guys might like that, too. If you choose to leave this in or not, this is the co-creator of that podcast. Serrano from Raleigh, North Carolina. I am not in my car. I am actually walking, but I'm on my commute. I took your heed to call during my commute. Lastly, I think speaking on Slack and email to both of you here, Mr. Leary, you said you prefer email over Slack. I beg to differ. In a work environment, I think email will drown you just into Slack, but that could be a conversation for another day. Cheers, guys. Keep doing the good work. That was Scott Scarano. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate the kind words. He has his own podcast, Sons of CPAs. We'll have to check it out. Oh, and I know he said it was your birthday? It was my birthday, yes. Oh, I'm, I'm the worst co-host ever. Jesus. <laughs> I was one, one more thing I was going to say, and it is, it is now out of my head, I think because we're out of time. So, David, if, if folks want to get in touch with you... How can they do that? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. If you're going to use LinkedIn, say, I'm not a bot. I am at Blake T. Oliver. David, see you next week. Yep. Time for the classifieds. Have you dreamed of starting a bookkeeping business, but you don't know where to start? Join the Bookkeeping Biz Workshops, a four-day live workshop series hosted by Serena Shoup, CPA. You'll learn what it takes, which tech to start with, how to build a business, not a job. Plus, you'll get comfortable on discovery calls. The workshops begin August 22nd, so register today at bkworkshops.online. That is bkworkshops.online. If you're looking to fast track a scalable seven-figure accounting firm that doesn't drive you into the ground, Check out Ryan Lazanis' online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. Designed around Ryan's experience taking his cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm. You'll get coaching when you need help with implementation. And you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of others forward-thinking firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That is www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. I quickly wanted to let you know about a new project that I've been working on for the last year or so. I'm launching a podcast network called Accounting Podcast Network. It has new podcasts that I know you'll love, like the Accounting Salon Conversations podcast hosted by Amanda Aguilar and the Accounting Automation Workflows podcast co-hosted by Brian Clare and Heather Satterley. Head over to accountingpodcastnetwork.com. That's accountingpodcastnetwork.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.